If you uh, reach for your Bibles and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning, and if you don't have a Bible with you today, there's a pew Bible right in front of you, and uh, we'll be turning to Luke chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 27 through 40. It's page 605 in those pew Bibles. As Pastor Bruce will be kicking off a new series, Final Questions About Life After Death, and uh, he's going to start that series today that I'm talking about There Is Life After Death. We're going to be using as our text Luke chapter 20 verses 27 through 40. So listen as I read our text for today. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as his wife. And he died childless, and then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Then Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for, uh, for sending your son, for his death on the cross that pays the penalty for our sins, and for his resurrection that we celebrate on this Easter Sunday. And Lord, we thank you that uh, there is life after death, and we thank you that uh, it is through uh, your son that we can be with you for eternity. Be with uh, Pastor Bruce as he speaks to us this morning. Help us to have open hearts and minds to learn what you would have to, uh, for us to learn today and to give you uh, all the praise and glory in everything that is said and done this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, man, that was just awesome. Thank you, Trio, and thank you, band. Great job playing for him as well, and uh, wow, that was just phenomenal. Get more excited about that than Moose's home run last night to win the Royals game. And uh, just exciting that Jesus is alive. And I know many of you here, you stand amazed that Jesus is alive. And perhaps you're here and you're not quite there yet. Uh, My prayer for you is that God would bring you to that point where you stand amazed that Jesus is alive. And that he's alive for you. To bring you new life. To bring you eternal life. In him, You know, this is my favorite Sunday of the year, and I'm sure it is for, for most pastors across the world, and uh, it certainly is for me, and there's just nothing in my mind than, that's better than coming together with Christ followers to celebrate this defining moment in all of history, that day that Jesus defeated death and resurrected from the grave. And this is what world over Christ followers are celebrating, have already begun to, 
across our nation and world. It's an amazing thing. Craig Barnes is the pastor of National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and in an article called Easter in the Age of Terror, he points out that Easter is both good news but also terrifying news. It is good news that Jesus came back from the dead, but it is terrifying news because Easter confronts us with the awful reality of death. And it's this reality of death that I want us to think about this morning as we begin a new series called Final Questions, A Biblical View of Life After Death. At some point in time, we all wonder about life after death. It's, it's natural to think about the afterlife because sooner or later we are all going to die. It's been said that nothing is certain in life except death and taxes, but death is more certain than taxes. A clever man can find ways to evade taxes, but no one evades the grim reaper. When your time is up, it is up. It's like the undertaker who signed all of his correspondence, eventually yours. And he's right. Death is eventually coming for us all. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 reminds us that every one of us here this morning, we all have an appointment with death. In the words of the Hebrew, it says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And this is one appointment no one will miss. This last week, I came across the website, deathclock.com. In fact, I, you're welcome to pull out your, your mobile device and even go to it on our website, not our website, but to uh, our Wi-Fi and, uh, and, and look up deathclock.com. And their slogan is this, the Internet's friendly reminder that life is slipping away. The death clock ticks off your remaining time on earth and hours, minutes, and seconds, and all you have to do is enter some information on yourself, and the clock begins ticking down. And after entering my own personal information, I discovered my personal day of death is Friday, September 14th, 2020, at age 73, which means I only have 23 more years to live. That's a scary thought. Of course, it's all hypothetical. But if you're like most people, you'd rather not think about or talk about your own death. But ignoring your death won't stop it from happening. The mortality rate is still 100%. Medical advances may extend our lives, but no one lives forever. And so it's good to think about life after death and actually what happens after we die. Now in answering questions about life after death, we're only left with two sources to consult. There's only two places to go for answers. We can either turn to human experience, or we can turn to the Word of God. And if we turn to human experience, we find many guesses, we, we find many ideas, many theories, but no sure answers. And the reason is obvious, the only people who have the answer are dead. And that leaves us now with the Word of God. As our Creator, God knows what happens after we die. And He hasn't left us to wonder about it. The Bible tells us all we need to know about life after death. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, let's answer the first question in this series this morning. Is there life after death? Now, 
Most people hope there is. That's where most people are at in life. They hope there's life after death, but there are some who doubt it and others even who deny it. Recent surveys reveal that the majority of Americans, in fact, in most surveys, there's a lot of them different out there, anywhere from 70 to 80% of Americans, and it spans all age groups, all demographics, believe in some sort of life after death. But there are some who doubt it, like the former CNN host Larry King, who said, and I quote, my biggest fear is death because I don't think I'm going anywhere. But there are others who deny the possibility of life after death. Like Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher and mathematician, who said, I believe that when I die, I shall rot, and nothing of my ego will survive. Thousands of years ago, Job spoke for us all. When he asked in Job, chapter 14, verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? That's the question, isn't it? We all die, but what then? Is it just ashes to ashes, dust to dust? Is that all there is? And that brings us now to our story here in Luke chapter 20 between Jesus and the Sadducees. It starts with this rather weird question, and it ends with a very surprising answer by Jesus Christ himself. On the surface, we might assume that this story that Zach just read for us here in Luke 20, it has absolutely nothing to say to us. It's like archaic, it's irrelevant, it doesn't matter. But this story presents us with an issue of profound importance. Is there life after death? The Sadducees said no. Jesus said yes. Now, this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees took place two or three days before Jesus was crucified and then resurrected three days later. Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the final time. He knows His time on this earth is short. He knows He will be crucified on Good Friday, and He knows He will rise from the grave three days later. Everywhere Jesus goes... Crowds of people are gathering around him to listen as he debates the religious leaders of the day. Now, most of the time, Jesus deals with the Pharisees, who were the largest religious group in Judea. But on this particular occasion, Jesus faced off against the Sadducees, who came to him with this rather absurd question about a woman with seven husbands. And from Jesus' answer, we learn a great deal about life after death. So let's look at this question. Let's break it down from Jesus' answer here, from this encounter that we find here. Notice, number one, look at the Sadducees' absurd question. Now, right off the bat, many of you, if you're like me, I was wondering the same thing. Who in the world are the Sadducees? Never even heard of these dudes. Who are they? Well, they were a very select group of religious leaders with some rather strange views or beliefs. The Sadducees were wealthy, they were educated, they inherited the priesthood, and so they ran the temple in Jerusalem, and they were also politically connected with Rome, who was in power at that time. The Sadducees also regarded the first five books of the Old Testament, that is the books that Moses wrote, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as the only authoritative Jewish scripture. 
And essentially, they disregarded the whole rest of the Old Testament. But the biggest reason the Sadducees were, if we can say it, Sadducee, which is a great way to remember who they are, Sadducee, and the reason they are Sadducee is because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed all you see in life is all you get in life. Which meant they didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. And they didn't believe in life after death. And that is hopeless in the face of the harsh realities of the life in which we see in our world today, even back then. But it also means that there is absolutely no accountability to God. Because if I die and that's the end, then I don't have to answer for my life to God. There's no accountability to God. You just live, you die, and that's it. The Sadducees, they had a religion, if you will, a form of a religion, but they didn't believe in a God who could do anything amazing. And so they didn't have a great amount of hope or faith beyond what they could achieve or do on their own. They can't conceive of a God who can do miraculous things. They can't conceive of a God who is capable of creating all things. This is sad because if your God can't create, then he can't recreate and he certainly can't resurrect. And if he can't resurrect, then he can't resurrect you. Now, if there was one man in Israel at the day who threatened the Sadducees' whole view of life, whole way of life, it was Jesus Christ, the Messiah one. He was a direct threat to everything that they believed. And so these guys, the Sadducees, this group of men here, they come to Jesus two or three days before he's going to be crucified, and they come to him with a question that seemed absurd in that day, and it sounds even more absurd in our day. Notice the question again. Look at it with me in your notes or turn to your Bibles. We see it here in verses 27 through 33. It says, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection, they came to him, that is Jesus, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now here's their question. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second brother took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third brother took her. And in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. And here's their summary question. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, you've got to admit, that is a weird question. That is a rather bizarre question, an absurd question. In fact, there is a motive behind the question. Notice this in your notes. It was designed to make the very idea of the resurrection seem ridiculous. So this was not a sincere question. These people were not seeking truth. They were not seeking answers to questions. May I remind us here? 
It is good to have questions. It is good to ask questions. It is good to go to God in the Word of God to seek answers for your questions. Especially if you are sincere and you want to hear and to know the truth. That was not the case with these guys. It's a very serious question. In fact, it was a hypothetical situation designed to show how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection. This absurd question was actually based on, though, the law of Moses. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 6, or even 5 through 10. And this law of Moses, this teaching of the law of Moses, it basically said this, that if a man dies without having any kids, then the next single brother in line would marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now the reason we have this law of Moses in the Old Testament is because this was a very gracious, a very merciful provision by God himself for his people. What this provided is it was, this law was there to protect widows who couldn't earn a living, as well as to preserve family legacies and inheritances. But in raising their hypothetical question, the Sadducees took this gracious provision in the law of Moses, and they took it to an extreme, a very absurd extreme. One bride for seven brothers in heaven. And we all know that sounds ridiculous. The very absurdity of this situation was an attempt to prove a point. And in this particular case, they were trying to show how ridiculous the resurrection was by asking Jesus who this woman would have for a husband in heaven after marrying seven brothers on earth. Now, obviously, with that context in mind, you can now begin to see or perhaps even understand that the Sadducees framed this question precisely so that we would laugh at the very idea of the resurrection. But let me tell you, Jesus was not laughing. Little did they realize how flawed their reasoning was or what a bad question they were asking. In fact, teachers sometimes say to their student, man, that is a great question. But let me tell you, in this case, it would have been perfectly appropriate for Jesus to say, that's a stupid question. But as bad as this question was, it still needed to be answered because the Sadducees were attacking, get this, the very heart of the gospel. Let me explain. The word gospel simply means good news. And the gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done to rescue us from our sins. And to be specific, the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ plus the empty tomb, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so by dying on the cross, by dying in our place on the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment that we deserve so that we can live forever with God. That's the heart of the gospel. But the Sadducees were denying this. They were denying the very resurrection, that there is one by eliminating, therefore, half of the gospel. Because if there is no resurrection, then there's no good news for sinners. And folks, that means there's no good news for us. Furthermore, if there is no resurrection, then there is no final judgment. 
and therefore there is no need for an atonement. That is, there's no need for Jesus to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins. There's no need for that. Which eliminates the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, His death, and His resurrection. And so this attack on the good news of salvation is a matter, it's such a matter of life and death that Jesus has to respond to it. And so listen to the Lord's profound answer now. Look at it with me, point number two. Now this story, this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees is actually told in three of the four Gospels. It's told in Matthew's Gospel, it's told in Mark's Gospel, and in Luke's Gospel. There's an interesting, uh, if you go to Matthew's version of this encounter, he includes a sentence that's not included in Luke's version here in which we read. And I want you to see it. It's in your notes. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29 it says, Jesus answered and said to them, he's speaking to the Sadducees now, he's answering their question, he says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And so immediately we see Jesus answer to these dudes. He tells the Sadducees, they are mistaken. In other words, you're wrong. Jesus just, that's where he starts. You're wrong. You're wrong on this issue. Jesus doesn't say, gee, that's a really interesting point. We should maybe explore this further. Maybe I'm wrong. Jesus doesn't say that. No, Jesus tells them they are mistaken in what they believe. And this word mistaken, it's an interesting word. It literally means to go astray or to lead astray. And in this case, both were true of the Sadducees because they had gone astray themselves and now they were leading others to go astray from the truth. And then Jesus tells them why they are wrong, why they are mistaken. He says, because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now, what Jesus tells them, listen, in our PC world, it seems rather harsh, doesn't it? I mean, that first, that initial response, that seems rather harsh coming from Jesus. But let me tell you, in my opinion, this is the most loving thing Jesus could do. He is exposing their error. He's exposing their ignorance so they might come to a correct understanding of God's Word and God's power. Going back to Luke chapter 20, verses 34 and 36 show us why they didn't understand the power of God. And verses 37 and 38 show us how they didn't understand the Word of God. Now, taking these two points here, they're mistaken on these two points. First of all, Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. So by asking this absurd question, the Sadducees showed that they underestimated God's power here. Remember, they can't conceive of a God who does miraculous stuff, who can conceive and create and recreate. This just not, doesn't compute for them. And so they underestimated God's power. They started with life as we now know it and simply extrapolated it into the next life. But Jesus says that the resurrection, get this, is not a continuation of this life, but rather it is a transformation of all that we have known. 
Look at it. Verses 34 and 36, see it. Look at it in your, with your own eyes here. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, immediately, perhaps you caught this, Jesus makes two important distinctions between this age in verse 34 and that age in verse 35. In other words, the sons of this age are people who are alive today. So, and when he uses the word sons, it's a reference to all of humanity. So every one of us here, we are sons of what age? This age, the present age. Anyone who lives from now until the day of judgment. And Jesus says that marriage is a natural part of this present age in which we now live, but it will be quite different in the coming age when no one will get married. Thus, the question that the Sadducees were asking rested on a false assumption that the afterlife is only a continuation of this life as we know it. But Jesus said that in some ways our existence then will be very different than our existence now. And one of those differences is there is no marriage in heaven. Now, perhaps that is a new truth for some of you here this morning. Didn't realize that. Perhaps for some who are happily married, and you're a Christ follower, what Jesus said about marriage may come as a disappointment or even a shock. Pastor and author Timothy Keller said it this way, the greatest marriage that ever happened on this earth, the greatest sex life, the greatest oneness, the greatest joy will feel like a dewdrop compared to the atomic bomb of what God has prepared for us in heaven. I would also remind us that if you are a Christ follower here this morning, we, we are engaged already to the bride. And who's the bride? Jesus Christ. And when we get to heaven as Christ followers, our marriage to the bride, Jesus Christ, will be consummated. And so while there is no marriage in heaven as we think of marriage here on this earth, there is a marriage in heaven. It's just that we are all married to Jesus. And we will have this perfect relationship with Him. The most glorious relationship will be consummated up there. We can't even begin to fathom what that relationship will be. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, you go to Ephesians chapter 5, and he talks about marriage there, and he basically says, your marriage here on this earth is to be a reflection and is to point others, and yourself included, to the coming perfect relationship that you have with Jesus Christ in heaven. It's a small picture of that. That is our purpose of marriage here on earth. But there will be no more need for marriage in heaven. When it comes to life in the resurrection, Jesus teaches us a truth then about matrimony. There's no marriage in heaven as we know it now. But he also teaches us a truth about immortality. And this is where we really see the power of God at work. Jesus says that when God raises us from the dead, we will never die again. 
That's exciting. This also seems to be the main point of the comparison that Jesus makes to the angels when He says we are raised from the dead and we will be equal to the angels. Some versions say we will be like the angels. Now, just so you're, you get this right, this does not mean we become angels. And I'm so thankful for that. All right? He's not saying we become angels. It simply means that just as angels never die, in the resurrection we will never die either. That's what it means here. And so do you realize the implication of this? Our mortality is what makes this life on this earth such a tragedy. But in heaven, there is no sorrow, there is no suffering, there is no sadness, there is no death. And if there's no death, then there's no need for funeral directors there. And to that we say hallelujah too, right? Listen, after the resurrection, no one will ever die again. What a glorious truth about the very power of God. This is what the Sadducees underestimated. They did not know the power of God. But Jesus also told them, you don't know the Word of God. Jesus quotes a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that the Sadducees would have been incredibly familiar with. In fact, they would have had it memorized. In verses 37 and 38 of Luke 20, look at it here. Jesus says, hey, hey. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. And when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now let me tell you, every Jewish person alive at that time in history, let me tell you, they knew the story of Moses and the burning bush. They knew it frontwards and backwards. And you find this story in Exodus chapter 3. So why did Jesus quote this story? Because God, in this story, listen, He identifies Himself in a certain way. You go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and here's what it says. I am, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, Jesus is pointing out something to them that is both simple but powerful, and that is the tense that God uses to describe himself. And so get this, God says, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the difference between I am and I was. And the clear implication that Jesus is drawing for us is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead, folks, but are alive. That's the implication of this. And that's the difference between the past tense and the present tense. Now, we talk the same way when we go to a funeral. We just naturally do this. We say, he was a great friend. She was a wonderful wife. And that's natural for us to do that. Because we tend to think that death moves our loved ones into the past tense. But Jesus says otherwise. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. To them, death 
upended everything. But when God said, I am, instead of I was, do you realize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years already? And so God should have said, I was, if death is the end. But God promised to be their God, and death cannot break that promise. He promised to be their God, not just for a moment in time, but forever. That's the meaning of verse 38, when Jesus summarizes his answer, and he basically says, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Listen, we claim that promise even now on this Resurrection Sunday. We have a truth, and the underlying that belief is in the resurrection of the dead, that God will raise the dead because he cannot fail to keep his promises. Our God, who calls himself the God of the living, will not leave his people in the grave. Our hope in life after death in heaven, do you realize it rests in the character of God? It rests in the promises of God. It rests in the power of God. The same God who delivered Jesus from the grave is the same God who will deliver and raise up our earthly bodies to glorify bodies with God forever in heaven. That is our hope. And, there is, and so the question is not, it really is. It's not so much do we believe in life after death. The real question here for us this morning is, do we believe in God? Folks, do you realize there is coming a day when our bodies will be raised from the dead. A day when sin is no longer our identity and death will no longer be our destiny, but we will be victorious in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is pointing the Sadducees back then and he's pointing us now to that glorious day that is coming. So how should we respond? How, how, how should we all respond to this? Well, number three, learn from the crowd's silent reaction. Notice how this encounter ends. It ends rather abruptly in verses 39 through 40. It simply says, Then some of the scribes who were there listening answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. And that was kind of a sarcastic way of complimenting Jesus because they didn't really respect him either. And then it ends this way, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now that's interesting. I can somewhat understand why the Sadducees didn't ask Jesus any more questions. If you were a Sadducee, perhaps you could relate. I mean, after all, they were trying to discredit Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He discredits them in their belief that there's no resurrection. He puts them in their place, says, you're mistaken, you're wrong. So I can understand why they would not dare ask Jesus any questions. But I'm somewhat surprised that no one in the crowd who was gathered around Jesus and listening in on this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees, none of them, no one in the crowd, dared to ask Jesus any question. That's amazing to me. Jesus has just got through talking about life after death. You would think at least one person 
uh, master, teacher, I got a question about this. In fact, I got all kinds of questions about life after death, and you seem to know all the answers. But no one dared to ask him any questions. Now, based on Jesus' answer here, I would put forth to us this morning that there is one question every one of us here this morning should be asking. And it's this question here. How can I be counted worthy to attain the resurrection of eternal life in heaven? Listen to me carefully. The truth of the matter is, not everyone who dies will go to heaven. Not everyone who dies will go to heaven. But only those who are, in the words of Jesus Christ, counted worthy. Jesus says something here in Luke, in his answer, that we must not miss. He says it in verse 35. Look at it. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, the age after this life, the resurrection, if you will, and the resurrection from the dead. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. The only people who attain the resurrection of eternal life in heaven are the people that God counts worthy. Which also means, if you're not counted worthy by God, then you will be raised to eternal life, but you will be raised to eternal life not in heaven, but in hell. So now, we come to a rather very, very important question. A question that impacts every one of us here this morning. And that question is this, if I want to go to heaven when I die, and if heaven is only for people who are counted worthy to be there, then what? Then what do I have to do for God to count me worthy? This verb, counted worthy, it's powerful. It also means to make worthy. You see, this worthiness is not something that we do to attain. But it is something that is done to us. This worthiness is not something that comes from inside of us, but something that God declares about us and gives to us by His grace and mercy. You see, because of our sin, we, every one of us here, we are not worthy in ourselves. Nevertheless, God counts us worthy in Jesus Christ. And we know from the rest of the Scriptures that God does this on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, we are not worthy. But Jesus Christ is. 
That's the hope of the good news. And when we come to that point in our life where we recognize that truth, that reality, I am not worthy to attain the resurrection of eternal life in heaven. That is not me. There's nothing in me. I cannot earn that. I cannot work for that. And when I come to that point in my heart to where God humbles me and I repent of my sin that makes me not worthy and I repent of it and go to the Christ and ask for His forgiveness for my sin, that's when God, you know what He does? It's a beautiful thing. That's when he counts you worthy. Not based on you, but because of Jesus Christ. And you now are worthy in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, I love how he puts this in Philippians 3.9. Here's the words of Paul. He says, I want to be found in Christ. And I read that and I pray that that is my motto in life. I pray that that is your heart's desire. I want to be found in Christ. Because that is the only thing that matters when you come to the end of your life. Will you be found in Christ? He says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. And if you are banking on that righteousness that you think is of yours, and that you think you can earn and do, and you're going to present that to God when you stand before Him, that that's going to get you into His heaven, you are deceived. I told you this question is rather serious. It has huge ramifications for our eternal lives. Paul goes on. He says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, that is so beautiful. In summary, here is how we are counted worthy to attain the resurrection of eternal life in heaven. You must have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is that simple. And that's what Christ, that's what he provides us in the gospel. That's what Christ provides us in his death and his resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel, and it is for everyone, no matter how bad your sins are or have been in the past. Doesn't matter. Listen, God's. Forgiveness is greater than your sinfulness, no matter how bad you think it is. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's the hope of Easter that we celebrate here this morning. In fact, notice this in your notes. The message of Easter, it reminds us that there is hope beyond the grave. Amen? There is a resurrection to eternal life for those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. The hope of Easter ultimately points us to this question. Are you going to trust in Jesus for your salvation? That is it. Are you going to believe in Him for eternal life? Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily I tell you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over, get this, from death to life. In other words, from eternal death 
to eternal life. And before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus tells us in John 11, 25 and 26, He says, this is the words of Christ, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in Me will never die. Do you believe this? When our country was at war in Iraq back in the early 90s, David Bloom was an NBC News correspondent who, who covered that war in Iraq. Perhaps you've heard of him. What most people don't know is that David Bloom had just recently accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He grew up in a religious home, but it wasn't until he moved beyond theoretical theology to a personal relationship with Jesus that he had the assurance of forgiveness of sin and the certainty of eternal life in heaven with Jesus. On April 5th, he was crouched in a modified tank. David picked up his phone and he played back his message. And One voicemail was from Jim Lane, who was David's Bible study leader. And the two friends shared this daily, long-distance devotional time using Oswald Chambers' classic, My Utmost for His Highest. And the reading for that day was based on Matthew 25. Because of what the Son of Man went through, every human being can now get through into the very presence of God. Moments later, David climbed out of the tank, took a few steps, and collapsed and died. Over 2,000 people attended his memorial service at St. Patrick's Cathedral. The tributes to his life were moving, but what left the packed pews in stunned silence was a final email to his wife from the battlefield in Iraq. I quote, Here I am, supposedly at the peak of professional success, and I could frankly care less. Yes, I'm proud of the good job we've been doing but in the scheme of things, it matters little compared to my relationship with you, the girls, and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Because David Bloom said yes to Jesus, he crossed from death to life. At the end of John 11, Jesus called out in a loud voice to Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And Jesus calls out to him and says, Lazarus, come out! You know what happened? Lazarus came out. Jesus called him by name, and he's calling you by name this morning. Listen, the Easter gospel is personal. It's for every one of us here this morning. Jesus died for you, and he rose for you so that he can bring life to you. And the question is, will you say yes to him? on this resurrection day. Let's pray. As we bow our heads together, this is the point in our service where we come to a response time. We're not going to ask you to do anything that, that you don't have a desire to do, but we do want to give a few minutes for people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the message that we just heard this morning. And that response is responding to Jesus. Responding to what he offers to you with his death and resurrection. And if God is speaking to you, now is the time to respond. Before the praise team sings, 
I would ask if you're ready to respond to Jesus to prayerfully run to the cross, to run to Jesus, to go to him. Don't delay, don't wait, don't put it off. You never know when death might be knocking at your door. Now is the day of salvation. And so if God is pulling at your heart, if he's tugging at your heart, let me encourage you to respond right where you're seated, right there in your pew. You can silently cry out to Jesus and he will hear your prayer of salvation. There's even a, a prayer there in the bottom of your notes as, that you can use, you can put it in your own words, and you can pray that to God, and he will answer your prayer. Lord, we come to you and we thank you so much for your resurrection. That is our hope. We thank you for the power of that resurrection, knowing that it is the power that brings us to life in you, and one day will resurrect us to eternal life with you. Lord, I pray that by your spirit and by your word, you would move among us even now. You would draw those who you want to respond to you in salvation, that they would cry out to you in a prayer, asking for forgiveness, repenting of their sins, and expressing that they want to trust you and follow you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would grant them faith, you would grant them new life, eternal life, in your son Jesus Christ, and that you would count them worthy not because we are worthy in ourselves, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers us. And so, Lord, let us claim that for us now as a congregation, but more importantly, as individuals. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing just a chorus of invitation. Will you respond? Mm -hmm.